another juicy episode but before we jump in how are you doing Zach? I'm doing great it's been a great day it's a great Monday that we're recording this and yeah everything is moving along in live as I kind of finally figure out what my project is going to be for my PhD and I finally send out um, all my emails to ask people to sit on my qualifying exam committee so I think a lot of things are coming so I'm super excited but how are you, Raghavi? Oh, wow. That's that's an intense day. Wow. Like you yeah. figured out what you were going to do when you're going to grow up and <laughs> pursue your PhD. Yeah. So basically qualifying exam is part of like PhD journey. It's your first roadblock, but also a point of like opportunity for growth. So basically mm-hmm. you have faculty that will listen to your proposal and mm-hmm. challenge you and help you grow and make sure you are have a very thorough, well thought of plan for your entire PhD. So once you finish that, you're officially a PhD candidate. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, no, I finally Very figured out who exciting. I want to be. I, I'm super excited. Um, yeah. Yeah. But how's your day? My day was not as intense. It was very chill, actually. Uh, my school gave us free ice cream for lunch or not for lunch, but like during lunchtime. And I was very happy about that. And then I also realized like later during dinner time that they had an event with free pizza from Blaze Pizza. And I was very happy about that. So I went and then I also dragged a few of my friends who were not super excited about the event, but you know, there's free food. So that was good. Other than that, it was a beautiful day in Boston. So it just, you know, kind of hung out, um, walked around a little bit. Yeah, and did a little bit of work. So it was very chill. Yeah, do you know why they're handing out free ice cream? Because I think Harvard was also hanging out. Like they were handing out free ice cream at Ben and Jerry's. Oh, I think it might have been for the um, uh, National Public Health Week, which is very interesting. Why would you hand out ice cream for Public Health Week? But that's why my school was handing out um, ice cream. I don't know why Um, Harvard was doing that. Very National Happiness Happiness Day. Yeah, happiness day. There you go. Right. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah. Should, we, should we introduce our amazing guest for this evening? Yeah. So do you want to get us started? Yeah. So our next guest is someone very special. She is getting her medical education at Yale School of Medicine and is also serving as one of the executive directors of F1 Doctors this year. Um, she is originally from Sao Paulo, Brazil, received her bachelor's in cognitive neuroscience and master's in psychology from Brown University. And I'm talking about none other than Gabby. Yeah, so when this episode was recorded, I was actually busy grinding for step one in the summer. So you will hear Shade's beautiful voice in this episode in case you miss her in the first episode of our second season. But without further ado, let's jump into this interview. All right, hello everyone, and welcome back to this week's episode of the F1 Pod. Today we have a very special guest. We have Gabby here with us, who was recommended by Rachel, our former fearless F1 Docs leader. And we also have Raghavi here, one of our new team members who will be helping to conduct the interview. 
So I'm just going to open up the floor right now and to you, Gabby, and ask that dreaded question on med school interviews. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Perfect. I love this question. Uh, so I'm Gabby. I'm originally from Brazil. So I was born in Sao Paulo and I lived there my entire life up until it was time to go to college. And I went to college in Providence in Rhode Island. I went to Brown where I studied cognitive neuroscience, which I absolutely loved. I did a bunch of research on sleep, which was my, my favorite thing ever at the time. And then stuck around in Providence for an extra year, got my master's in psychology. And then at the end of that, COVID hit, the world started to end. And then I came to medical school and now I am a rising third year at Yale, thinking about going to psychiatry and but just in clinical rotations, enjoying life. That sounds incredible. Um, so you mentioned growing up in Brazil. I wanna know more about young Gabby then, like what was she like? What made her wanna jump the plane, come to Rhode Island? I'm assuming you'd never been there before. Like what, what was she like? I definitely, uh, had no idea what Rhode Island was when I was growing up. <laughs> um, little Gabby was uh, very loud. And I think I just always wanted to be making noise and talking to people and meeting people and making jokes. And I think uh, in the end, when I was thinking about being on the podcast today, and I, and I, knew, I knew you guys were gonna ask me that question. I was thinking about like how when I was little, like many little kids, I wanted to be a vet because we had dogs at home and I just, I really like animals. But um, aside from that, I really like to like make people laugh and be around people and stuff. And at the end of the day, like, I feel like that comes from a very similar sentiment than the sentiment that ended up bringing me to medicine. Because at the core of both of those things, it's just like caring for other people and making other people feel good. Uh, so I think there was a lot of like being very philosophical about my upbringing. I think that those things can be very connected. But I was yeah, I was a loud child. I I when I was little, I played the drums. I everything that was noise related, I like to make noise. <laughs> Are you still as noisy as an adult? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> No, that's lovely. How how did that interest in caring for others and in vet, veterinary stuff, how did that like morph into you wanting to come to the US to pursue medicine? Like how did you, how did those dots connect for you? I think it took a long time for those dots to connect for me. So when I was very little, I went to like a normal Brazilian school. And then eventually, I think when I was eight, um, I started learning English and, and then I moved to an international school. And when I was in, in, the, in the international school, it kind of started opening, this is more in high school, but it kind of started opening like the door of like, it's possible to go to the US. Like my English got very good. I like learned about the process of taking the SATs and stuff like that. And, but I still didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And I think I did a lot of like reflecting. I. I took so many, I remember just taking all these like tests online of like, what should I be when I grow up? Because I was like, I don't know what I want to do. Um, but my favorite thing was always like talking to people and getting to know people. And I really loved science. 
and I liked psychology and, and the blend of all of those things ended up pointing me towards medicine. And when I was in high school, and, I, and I'm sure that a lot of other people who are international students right now in medicine have had this thought, at least at one point in their career, but just like, I was like, okay, I wanna be a doctor, but if I wanna be a doctor, then I definitely can't go to the US because then I can never come back home. And that was like, that was something I think like more of like our parents' generation. It was like, if you get certified elsewhere, you can't move to another country after you've like been licensed as a physician somewhere else. So I was like, I had this thought of like, I could go to the US, like I can try, like I have the, the English, I have the knowledge about like how to do the Common App and the SAT stuff that was all like in the international school, it was a, a common uh, thing to be learning about. But I was like, if I wanna be a lawyer or a doctor, I can't go abroad because then I'll never be able to come back home. So I was like, oh, what do I do? <laughs> But I really liked like how in the US, like you get to have like four years of like just learning a bunch of different things. Cause I'm sure in a lot of countries, a lot of other countries it's the same, but in Brazil, when you go to college, like if you go to college for medicine, you start medicine on day one when you're 18, 19, and then you graduate in six years and you're a doctor. So, and I really like this, like taking like a literature class or like learning all of these different things. And I was like, you know what? I'm trying to apply. I'll see what happens. You know, it's not, there's no guarantee that I'm gonna get into any university in the US, but if I get into a cool university that I really like and everything works out, then I'll go. And then I, I applied, I got in, I loved Brown. I, I, like, I was talking to all the admitted students and I was like, this place is so cool. So I went and I remember going that first semester and I was like, I'm just trying it for a semester. And if I don't like it, I'm gonna come back home. I'll take the entrance exams and then I'll try to get into a medical school here in Brazil. And then I loved it. It was really hard. I was shocked by how hard that first semester of college was in the US, but I, I had so much fun and I was like, I'm learning so many different things. And so I decided to stay and then now it's been seven years and I'm still here. <laughs> and then I started doing my pre-med courses uh, I started getting more involved in healthcare and like actually doing things where I could be around patients. And I was like, oh, this is exactly what I was afraid of. I really like it and I really want to pursue this. So I think that's kind of like how I ended up where I am. Yeah, that sounds really nice. I What I heard in your answer as a common theme was like a no pressure mindset. You were just trying it out. You just wanted to see if it would work out for a semester. You were not making a lifelong commitment by coming to the US, which I really like, because I think a lot, of, a lot of times that gets kind of sucked out of us as pre-meds in this journey. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I like that you have this refreshing mindset. Yeah, that's a really cool story, actually. Yeah, it sounds like you're very adaptable, you know. Um you like to try things out and see how it goes. And I think that that kind of mindset is very helpful when approaching applying to medical school and all those things, because it's a, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And I know sometimes there's like a prescribed idea of the steps that you need to take in order to get to medical school. But that's like very refreshing to hear. And how, how do you think that kind of mind, mindset has, how do you think it has influenced um, other decisions that you've made on your journey to medical school? I think it's kept me very open-minded in the sense of like, 
like things are unpredictable. You're going to end up liking things that you didn't think you were going to like, and you're going to end up learning things that are going to change like what you want to do. And you're going to learn new things about yourself as you go. And you need to adapt to those changes because if you like, I know in medicine, there's obviously like, you need to, you need to be all in, like you need to give like your all to like getting through pre-med and like you have to be very dedicated and on top of things, but things are going to go wrong and things are going to go differently than what you expect. And you need to be, I don't know, I think it's very important to be able to change course or like adapt to how things change throughout your journey because it's inevitable. Things are going to change. And, it's, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a lesson for life too. Like things are going to go wrong all the time. In medicine, things are going to go wrong all the time. And like learning how to adapt and like fix your course as you go, I think is important. And also like, I don't know, if you put too much pressure on yourself, you're going to end up burning out so early. We, nobody can do better than their best you do and you go and if it works it works and you keep trying <laughs> no absolutely um I want to take it back a little bit to um asking you about your uh college days um because you went to like a pretty um prestigious institution how how did you manage you know being surrounded by people who were just brilliant all around and of course now you're also at Yale so you're you've been constantly surrounded by people who are brilliant and you yourself are brilliant but how do you navigate being in that space it was really difficult in the beginning I had a lot of fun like meeting people in college but in the actual classes I remember in the first few weeks I was like there's no chance that I'm gonna make it to the end of the semester like people are everyone seemed like they knew everything like they had and truly like in a lot of the high schools that people had gone to like they had been preparing to be in this environment their entire lives but especially for international students, like you're living in a new country, like you have to navigate all of the visa stuff of being in a new country and you have to learn a completely different way of learning. I remember like the readings, that was the thing that was so shocking to me. I was like, how are people reading this much? And like, I, I, would, I would try to sit down and do my readings and like, I would read so slowly. And I like, I was like, how can people get to this volume of reading? Um, and I think it's a very hard thing to navigate and I think if you stay in the mindset of comparing yourself to the people around you, like you're never going to be satisfied. And imposter syndrome is really, really real. And it's, it's so hard because when you recognize imposter syndrome, you're like, yeah, no, no, but I'm meant to be here. But no, but like, what if I'm not? What if I'm the one exception? And like, I really like just slid through the cracks. But it's, it's really important to, to recognize those thinking patterns and be like, no, I'm meant to be here. Like, there's a reason why I'm still making it through there. And even if the reason is just to have you as who you are for whatever that you can bring to the table, even if it's different from what everyone else is bringing to the table, you're always contributing something to the conversation. And especially like as international students, like we have had really interesting experiences that are very different from the people around us. And even if their experiences have prepared them better academically for where we are, we still have things that we're bringing to the table. We still have different perspectives and the things that we're bringing are very important. And they're, if, if not to, the, to that present moment, which they are, they're important to the people who will come after us and will have that space that we've created. Yeah, you said so many little gems in that conversation. It's, that's so right. Even now, looking back, uh, the comment that you made about reading really resonated with me because I'm in grad school right now and the amount of reading that you have to do how do people do that while living life it's it's kind of mind-blowing to me <laughs> um, but I wanted to like talk more about your experience in Brown 
what was one thing that made you who you are, like with the experience that you had in Brown? Like if you had to give a shout out to one experience in Brown that made you either want to pursue psychiatry or um, lead you to pursue medicine, like what would that one thing be? You know exactly what it is. <laughs> I, I'm going to throw it back a little bit to high school. And um, when I was in high school, I remember I, I was in the IB and I took IB psych, which was my favorite class. I loved it so much. And I loved my teacher and it was amazing. I remember reading something about sleep and how like high school students are being forced to wake up way too early and it's bad for them biologically and they should be like allowed to sleep later because there's like a shift in your circadian rhythms at that age. And I remember reading that and being like, this is the one. I love this. And I think it was truly, truly in retrospect, I think it was because I was so tired that I was like, there's a reason why I'm so tired. <laughs> I hate waking up early. Like, this is the best article I've ever read. And then for the IB, I don't know if you you guys did IB too. Uh, the IB, like, you have to write sort of like a high school thesis sort of situation. Yeah. The extended essay, which is not, it's not really like a thesis. It's just like a very long paper, uh, <laughs> which is like longer than the papers you usually write in high school. And I was like, I'm going to write about this. Like, this is the coolest thing I've ever read about. Like it explains so much. And I was super wild up about it. And the main researcher that's behind a lot of this sleep research and like the delayed circadian rhythm in teenagers, her name is Mary Karskadden. And she was working at Brown. And I remember like freshman year, she, she taught a class called Introduction to Sleep and it said no freshman. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna try. When I, when I found out she was at Brown, I was like, oh my God, like I have to meet her. And I remember going to her class freshman year and there was obviously, there was a wait list cause like Introduction to Sleep, like seems like such a cool class. And I, I went to the first meeting of the class and then at the end of the class, I, I went up to her and I was like, I, I really like your work. Like I really wanna be part of this class, but I'm a first year and she was like, I'm sorry, like you can't take this class. I was like, no, I was, I was devastated. I was like, this is my life calling and I can't believe I'm not gonna get to do this. Whatever, a year goes by, I'm a second year now, I'm a sophomore. I go back to the class and I'm like, I'm taking this class. So I take the class and then I talk to her and I'm like, I wanna get involved in this research. Like I'm very interested in sleep. I think honestly, like I was just like a sleepy teenager and then it snowballed into like a, into a career, um, like interest, but I talked to her, I started, I started working at her lab and in the beginning I was just like correcting data files and like organizing the file. They had this big attic in the lab, like full of data files. And I would like pull data files from the attic. Like that was what I was doing. And then that summer I ended up doing uh, like a, a, a research summer at the lab. And then I started working with one of the other PIs at the lab. And then I got really, really into all of the sleep stuff. I loved it so much. I, I thought sleep was super interesting. Um, I started doing work with ADHD and sleep and like kids with ADHD and like kids would come and they would sleep at the lab like to get their polysomnographies. And it was, it was really fun too, like working with the kids, like working overnight. Like it was my first experience ever working overnight. Um, and it's, it's a really strange experience, like switching night and day. And so I really enjoyed my work there. And I think that was one of the big things that propelled me into medicine and into psychiatry because I got to work with, with populations like kids with ADHD and like talking to their families and talking to them and then just learning more science, like the science of sleep and like and sleep patterns and doing my own research projects around that. And then eventually I went on to write my thesis 
about um, sleep and ADHD. And I had, so I had been working on this big project with all these kids with my PI and I didn't want to leave. Like there was still so much left to do and I didn't want to leave. And so I was like, I think like this is worthy of master's work. So I stuck around at Brown for an extra year because they have a fifth year master's program. You stick around for an extra year. You start doing master's work your senior year of college and then you finish it up the following year. And so I stuck around to kind of see the rest of that research through. Uh, and I think that was my big, like, my big, like, I, I found my space in science and something that I really like in the research sphere. And I just thought it was really cool. And I had a lot of fun with it too. And the people who work in sleep, like for some reason just happened to be like very nice people. So it was, it was a very, I was very lucky to have that environment to be the place where I discovered what it meant to have a voice in science and like what it meant to be part of research. It was, I don't take that, that space for granted. And then it kind of, that, that kind of propelled me into more science sphere, more psychiatry related stuff. Yeah, they were probably really nice because they were well rested themselves. <laughs> Everybody was well rested. Everybody knows you sleep. <laughs> but you can't make that up. That's destiny right there. Like you took a paper topic in Brazil for your IV class, which just so happened to be the author of a class that you would be taking in sophomore year at Brown. Mm -hmm. And that led to your master's. And now you're considering pursuing psychiatry like you can only connect the dots looking back and it's really amazing to see you do that um it just really shows that you were intentional in your choices but also let your surroundings um shape you into who you are so thank you so much for sharing that yeah of course it was a crazy story looking back I, I was thinking about it the other day and I was like wow that's kind of that's kind of interesting it was just like a little paper and then it, it shaped my entire college career after. No, I was just going to say, I agree. I thought that the people were nice because they were well-rested as well. Um, I have a follow-up question for you. So you connected um, your, all your research and interest in sleep with um, like a desire to want to go into psychiatry. And you also mentioned um, ADHD populations. I'm just curious as to like why you went psychiatry and not like neuro. So how, how why did you um, make that decision to do, um, to pursue psych and not some other area related to that? How, how did you anchor down on psych? I think that's a really good question. Like, I think it could have gone either way. And like that, that path very clearly goes both towards neuro and psych. But I think the thing that pulled me more towards psych and obviously like things can change I'm still, I'm still starting my third year, but I think the thing that pulled me more towards psych was just like liking talking to people and like getting to hear people's stories and seeing how that incorporates in their care. Because in psych, like it's so, your story is so connected to the type of care that you need to receive. Like it's, your, your story is completely connected to what your potential diagnosis would be, what your potential like treatment plan would be. Uh, and I and I just like talking to people, like I talk too much. And so that is something that's attractive to me in a career. And then, and so like, I, I tried different things out when I was in college, like there was, they like emailed out to everyone in the psych department, potential internship, like unpaid internship at the hospital in the, in the psychiatry department. I'm going to try it out. And then I actually got to work with um, psych patients who were in like a partial hospitalization program, which is like, it's like an intensive outpatient treatment. And I got to spend a lot of time there at the hospital, like the spring of my junior year, I think. And I really enjoyed it. 
So I came and, and then I studied psychology in my master's and I was like, okay, this is, I really like this stuff. Like, I feel like I'd be very happy if this was my career. You mentioned liking talking to patients, interacting with them. And I know that you're bilingual, right? You speak multiple languages. How has that, like being able to communicate to patients in multiple languages shaped your wanting to pursue psychiatry? Like, how do you see that play out in, in the future? That's interesting. I haven't thought about that, in, about psychiatry specifically. But just speaking other languages in general uh, is really useful to communicating with patients, as I'm sure you guys know as well. When you don't have to use an interpreter in the hospital and you're able to talk to the patient in their native language, it just like, if you're in a situation where you're in the hospital and you already feel very vulnerable, it's just so nice to have somebody who speaks your language. Like it's just a comforting thing. And I, and I don't think it goes unnoticed and I don't think it goes, it's not a neutral part of a person's care. It's actually a very positive part of our interactions with patients. But in terms of psychiatry specifically, uh, I hadn't thought about that directly just because I haven't had any Portuguese speaking patients in psychiatry yet in my in my rotations. But I did speak to somebody who is a resident here in psychiatry. And she says that whenever she gets the chance, she uh, will conduct all of her conversations with her parent with her patients in Spanish, if they're Spanish speaking patients. And she's able to like truly open up a whole entire population to coming to psychiatry because doing psychiatry through an interpreter is very hard, especially if like there's so many difficult topics that you have to reach in psychiatry and having to do that with a person who's not theoretically in your care team and it's not somebody that you really know. It's really a stranger like in the room with you or through an iPad or however you're doing the, inter the interpreting. Uh, it, it can kind of, it is a barrier to care in a way and it is a barrier to letting you speak with your provider. And so if your provider can speak to you in your native language, also the, like all the nuances that come in to, with a different language, like there's some things that you can't express in English, just as there's things that I think like I couldn't express in Portuguese. All those little nuances are very important, especially when you're sharing a story with a provider. So hopefully I'll be able to, to serve a Portuguese speaking population in the future. Yeah, no, that's such an interesting point. I think psychiatry, like you mentioned, is a, a very special um, specialty where like the communication is so, so essential. And I know you also speak advanced Spanish. Um, have you had any opportunity to use that in the clinical setting? Oh yeah, I've been uh, in, the, in the hospital, I've been speaking a lot of Spanish too. And I, and I remember there was, I was in my surgical rotation and this kid came in and I was in plastic surgery. When this kid came in and he had hurt his hand really bad and he worked with his hands a lot and he was scared that he was gonna lose a finger and if he lost a finger he would also lose his employment opportunities and that kid was in the ed for a couple of days like waiting to get clearance for surgery and stuff like that and people had been speaking to him like half in english half in spanish and I went to go round on him, like it was, I think it was Monday, like he had been there over the weekend and on Monday we went to go round on him. And I spoke to him in Spanish. It, it was like no one had spoken to him before. And I was like, you're not gonna lose your finger. Like we're gonna put it back and we're, like, we're gonna fix it. And he started crying. Cause at this, he had been there for like a couple of days and no one had like sat down and properly talked to this kid and been like, 
you're not going to lose your finger. So he thought he was going to lose his entire livelihood, like without being able to use his hand because he works with his hands. And speaking Spanish allowed me to be like, hey, kid, you're not going to lose your hand. Everything's okay. Um, so it helps. But also, like, speaking Portuguese makes speaking Spanish very easy. I won't flex the trilingual. It doesn't count. <laughs> it does not count. Um, I also um, speak some um, advanced Spanish, and I find that um, it's, like, just so useful to be able to um, speak those languages because... As we all know, the United States is becoming, has already been like multilingual, but like the Spanish speaking population, population makes up a huge percentage of the people in the United States. And it's so important to be able to pro provide um, culturally competent care mm -hmm. to these individuals. And I think us as international students, we're very um, poised to be able to um, not occupy that niche, but to kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? We are able to step into that space a little bit easier mm -hmm. <laughs> than others. And um, that's gonna be, I think um, that's something that schools should really take into consideration when mm -hmm. they um, think about the barriers that they put in place for international students, because mm -hmm. the, the United States is so diverse. So you need a medical workforce, just every workforce possible mm -hmm. to be able to um, cater to these populations. And so um, I think you're making an excellent point for why they should try to diversify medical school acceptances. I agree so much. And like, we came from different places. Like we know, not only do we have like our own cultures that we bring into the hospital, like we, I understand you, not just your language, but I understand your culture as my patient, but also like, we had to come from a different culture and adapt to American culture. So we know what it's like, if, even if somebody is from a culture that I'm not familiar with, not like very familiar with, or it's not my own culture, like I know what it's like to have to come to the US and, and adapt. And I think like we have such a good grasp on how to provide culturally competent care because we know what it's like to be like. So I think we are excellent providers of culturally competent care and I think if schools want to like boast that they they give good education about culturally competent care, then they also need to boast that they have good international student admissions because I think those go hand in hand very much so. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And I know that you like you mentioned so well that like if schools wanna wanna boast about the culturally competent care, they should be accepting international students too. And I was going through some of the work that you've done, and I saw that you've mentored um, international students, applied to medical school, and like pursue want to pursue exactly what you're doing right now. How has like mentoring? Because I because this goes back to the teacher that you had in high school and in in at Brown, right? How has mentoring like shaped you? as a mentee and also as a mentor, somebody who's gonna continue providing support to your students as well. I think mentoring has like once again, shown me how important it is to have representation in these places because a lot of people are gonna be like, I'm so sure that a lot of people in the F1 docs universe have had the experience of a pre-med advisor being like, don't apply to medical school you're not gonna get in. But then you go on the website and you see people, you see that there's so many people that are on F1 visa and they're in medical school. And then you find people from your own country and you're like, oh my God, this person's doing exactly what I wanna be doing. So 
F1 Docs is amazing. Obviously, like I don't need to, to do a plug for F1 Docs here, but it's it's such an important resource for people. And I think mentoring, like I found out more and more like how important it is to find people that are where you want to be that are similar to you. And if there are no people there, how important it is for you to pursue going to that place. And like, it's important and not just that, but like having mentors in general is also very important. And obviously like having people that are willing to pull you up and when you've been pulled up, being willing to pull other people up to where you are too. I think that's how we're gonna get like more people like ourselves to be in medicine and be in academia and stuff like that. And like, needless to say how important that is. So I think being a mentor has really taught me the importance of like looking up, seeing people like me, looking down, seeing people like me and pulling them up too. Yeah, representation is huge in medicine, especially for um, minorities like us. So, yeah. Yeah, I also really like, really like the, the scheme that you put, um, you just talked about it, of people above you, people below you and pulling them up. I don't think I've heard it said in that kind of way before. So I'm, I'm going to steal that one <laughs> next time. <laughs> yeah, that was a point. <laughs> it's yours. <laughs> Um, I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, earlier in the interview, you mentioned that you thought that coming to the U.S. would mean that you wouldn't be able to, like, work back home. So how has that realization changed over time? Because I think from my understanding, you are very well poised to um, be able to, like, go wherever in the world and work with a U.S. medical education. So how do you... Um, how do you foresee yourself using that um, U.S. medical degree to do work related to, um, you know, other international countries? Yeah, it was definitely a very big relief when I found out that, that wasn't true. <laughs> I found out that actually it's very possible and a U.S. medical education is very valuable like anywhere that you go in the world. That's a good question. I mean, every time I come home, like I'll go see my grandma and she's like, okay, is it next year? Or like, what year are you gonna come back? And it breaks my heart because I don't know. I'm like, grandma, this, this degree getting is so long and it takes so long and there's residency. And like, she's always like, okay, okay. A few more years and I'm like, ah, oh, grandma. Uh, I think like I've definitely been looking into how to get my medical license revalidated in different countries and how I can, legally practice in other places as well. And I think something that's really cool with psychiatry is that because of the pandemic, and um, this is something, this is one good thing that I think has come from the fact that we've had to move a lot of things online. You can provide care via Zoom or via Skype or via whatever, much more easily than you can for other medical specialties. So if you're, if you're able to be licensed to work in other countries and those are like bureaucratic processes whatever like you have to take exams and stuff like that but i believe that if you're if you're licensed to work in other countries then psychiatry can be very accessible right if, if somebody has access to the internet and that's another step then you're able to like provide that care if you're licensed to work in that country which has also like opened up a lot of doors so it may be even if i physically don't move back to brazil then I still have the ability to maybe be licensed there and work there and here whenever possible. So, and in terms of like doing global health work, I feel like 
we got so cheated of it in the first two years because of COVID and all the universities were like no traveling. So hopefully I can get more into that in the next two years because I would love to go to different places and provide care worldwide. Yeah, especially with like telehealth too. Um, I see psychiatry as one of the specialties where you can easily, well, not easily, but relatively easily um, provide care in different places mm-hmm. as long as you get the time zone correct. Yeah. <laughs> Which is... <laughs> Unlike today, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that would be really cool. So uh, in thinking about, you know, you share so many amazing gems with the with our podcast um, family and some of which I, I already admitted I'm going to steal. They're yours. <laughs> in thinking of like how um, they could further benefit from your story, I want to ask you if you were a fly on the wall of Yale's admissions office, what do you think they were saying about you when they were reading your application in terms of, you know, what made you stand out and why they wanted to have you there? Mm, that's a very good question. Mm. I think, I think I, through my application, like I created a, a narrative of who I am. Like I was able to really convey to them who I was and why I really was interested in medicine and like why through my story, like thinking about even the narrative of like, having written the paper in high school and then like pursuing it and making it like eventually into like a graduate school thesis. I think I did a good job in my application of sewing together the pieces of my story to make it make sense as a big whole, like a whole thing instead of little pieces, which I think made it easy for the admissions officers to know who I was and like to really understand who I am as a person. And then, and then they chose to like me, but that's on them. But the fact that they were able to see like who I was as a person that I had really explored medicine and like being around in clinical settings, I think that really helped my application. And and that's an advice that I give to mentees and F1 docs all the time. Make your story make sense because it makes sense. If you're doing the things that you like, then it makes sense. It's just who you are. So then you you try to like show who that is to the to the admissions officers and if they like who you are then you're definitely a good fit for the school because it makes sense yeah kind of going along the lines of what you said you say you mentee um, a lot of f1 mentees um what is one advice that you would give to somebody who is applying um this cycle or in the coming cycle because like we said this process is a marathon it takes a lot out of you and i think you have to be able to give a piece of you to the journey to be able to like move on to the next level so what, what is one thing that you would advise that we do as applicants? I think that piece about like really creating a story out of your story, like making it seem like beginning, middle, and to be continued. Painting a comprehensive picture of who you are is important. And also, I guess for interviews, like being very respectful of the person that's interviewing you and asking them, asking them questions too. And like, recognizing your worth I know the application process can be very dehumanizing and you feel like you're just a grain of rice in a big bag of rice and trying to stand out and I'm not gonna like I know it's easy to say from now that being already in medical school being like oh like you're gonna do very well whatever whatever it is really hard and it's getting harder and I'm, I don't want to ever like diminish how much work people are putting in to their medical school applications. It's not an easy process, but it's important to remember that you have a lot to offer to the schools too. And I know it seems like we're always at the mercy of the schools, 
but don't forget when you're going through that process that you're you're a valuable asset to that school and ask them questions and try to understand why they they would be good for you too and i know like there's a very big like beggars can't be choosers mentality but don't let the process as much as you can don't let the process make you feel like you need to sell yourself as, as much as possible like you're also very worthy you're bringing something very important to the school like all the things that we talked about today those are very important things so like you're you're a worthy person and sharing your story and understanding how they complement your story and help you reach your goals is very important as well again not to diminish how hard the process is because i know it's really hard and in the middle it just feels like if any medical school will take me like i'll be happy but you're you're a very important piece of your own story like don't forget that part too that's good advice well i really like that i really really like that that's so beautiful because um like you said a lot of times we just think um, oh gosh just just accept me please like you're begging this like i just need one school but if they're um if you're fortunate enough to go through the process and you realize that you have options, then um you're in a really nice place to really think about, you know, um which place would allow you to really shine, which place would really allow you to be like the best version of yourself. And um I think we oftentimes lose sight of that in the process and just think that we just need one school to accept us. And as international students, we are we are sort of in in that situation, yeah. but we have we have so much to offer, so much to offer. And um, I think F1 Docs has been doing such an amazing job of really fighting to um, get schools to recognize that. And I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that in the future, this will not be the case. I will be on par with US students in approaching the application cycle because you know there's just so much that we have to offer. And I think even recently the fee assistant program was, um, expanded to include international students, which is just such an amazing thing. I wish I was there when I was applying, but I'm so happy that it's there now. It's just a sign that slowly, slowly, like schools are really recognizing the work that we do and who we are as people and how that's important. We're getting there. And it's important to, when we are in these positions, you know, pull people up, like speak up, like since we're already in these institutions, speak up for people who aren't here yet. So if you're up for it, now we're going to transition to the hot seat. <laughs> the hot seat. <laughs> hot seat. Okay. Um, so the first one is, is there a click um, that you have found in your medical school? Are there clicks in your class? Clicks in my class. They're, they're friend groups. I wouldn't say that they're clicks. And I think, and this is both good and bad, but like, all of my friends are the international students and we all hang out together, like Rachel, sweet Rachel. Um, but yeah, there are definitely friend groups, but I wouldn't say that they're necessarily cliques, not all the time. And then I can ask another hot seat question. Um, what's one thing that you don't like as much about medical school or that you wish would be different? It doesn't have to be specific to Yale, it can be in general. Uh, they really just want you to learn so much in so little time. Uh, and also, I'll, I'll make it two things. Uh, I don't Go like, ahead. yeah. I don't like when, like, I, I'm expected to know things that have not like that are so niche have nothing to do with what I'm doing. Like sometimes I feel like in the hospital, like somebody will ask me something that has nothing to do with what we're doing that day, and I'm like. 
my scheme was my head. I was not prepared to, to deal with this right now. Shade, would you echo that? Do you think the same? Would you answer the same thing? I'm putting you on the hot seat now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think one thing that I, um, I, I struggle with with medical schools that are in this similar tier. So, you know, um, I'm at Stanford um, and schools that are similar to Stanford place a huge emphasis on research, which is very important. But sometimes I wonder if they could adjust things in such a way where like doing research didn't feel like you were compromising on your medical learning. So I do feel like sometimes I, I feel like you have to be multifaceted in, in a sort of way that kind of detracts from the actual medical knowledge that you're able to absorb and it's so much. And so I wish that they could, um, of course, like support people who really want to be scholars, but at the same time, not force us to be scholars as we are medical students. So like they could pull you in and I mean, you could be on that pathway to becoming um, physician scientists, but with an understanding that you can still be a physician scientist after you graduate, you don't have to be a physician scientist while you are in medical school. And for someone like me, like I feel like I um, there are other things that really excite me. Like I, I really love art. I feel like that might not be so valued, but I feel like that's something that I bring to the table um, because I use art as a way of taking care of myself. And um, I'm now trying to use it to show others how they can take care of themselves by like starting a YouTube channel and showing people how to do like painting and things like that but I don't know if that would be valued as like a publication even though I feel like it's such an important part of me and what I bring to the table I feel like I have to um I have to do scholarly work and I have to put a lot of energy there when I really wish I could put more energy into the artistic work that I do I'm changing my answer to that <laughs> exactly 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 like that that's I agree 100 percent yeah well, it looks like you you do have to be the trailblazer in that path <laughs> and make way for um, us so we don't feel pressured to do something just to fit in a mold. All right. Those are the hot seat questions that we have. I feel like those weren't too hot. I feel like we should. They weren't too they, they were, they were that hot. <laughs> but I, they were good questions. <laughs> they were good questions. <laughs> Um, thank you so much, Gabby, for um, coming on to the podcast. Um, this has been like a wonderful discussion. I really do think that you dropped so many gems. And like I said, I'm going to repeat it. I'm going to steal. <laughs> <laughs> they're yours. I said they're yours. They're yours. And thank you for having me. This was really fun. This was really cool. I yeah, really we haven't met you at all, but like I can just sense your energy and like you would be an amazing psychiatrist. I can just, I can just, yes. talk, or whatever, whatever specialty you do, even through Zoom, I can just get so much energy out of it. And to think that I've never even met you before, it's it's wild. So, do you want to write my recommendation letter? Oh, absolutely, <laughs> I would be honored. <laughs> I would be honored. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Gabby, and thank of you, course. Rachel, for um, recommending re recommending Gabby to the podcast. Yeah, big shout out to Rachel. She's a wonderful person. <laughs>
who currently matched actually into her top choice residency um, program in internal medicine at Wild Cornell. And this is definitely one of the fun ones. So I hope you tune in to find out more about how she got to that place and learn more about her journey. New episodes will be released every other week on Fridays at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Make sure you're connected with us on Instagram and Twitter, as we would love to hear from you on social media. Please also give us a rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Your support means a lot to us.